Instead of names and dates, let's focus on the narrative. I'm Adam Blesky. Each month I sit down with a friend to have a real conversation about a part of history that's new to them. The goal is to make connections, to foster curiosity, and to appreciate how incredible the story of humanity truly is. I'm not an expert. This isn't a lecture. This is HI 101. When talking about history, people love talking about pivotal events that divide time. Multiple events have been given the title of Herald of the Modern Age, the First World War, for example, or the French Revolution. But there's one contender that has just as much claim, and most people have no idea what happened if they've even heard of it at all. I'm talking, of course, about the Thirty Years' War. So why was all of Europe at war for an entire generation? Let's begin. I'm here on HI 101 with Colin Oliver. Hello. And today we're going to be talking about the 30 Years War. Yay. Weirdly enough, this is a topic that has come up sort of, kind of, in I don't know how many topics by now. Because for something that's not terribly well known, it's an incredibly important part of European history. Like very, very important. And I know pretty much nothing about it. Yeah, and I think part of the reason that it's not terribly well known is that it's extremely complicated. And it's been an inter interesting challenge putting this one together, specifically because there's simultaneously far too much information to pack into an episode. And when you get down to the task of summarizing it, kind of far too little. <laughs> And finding, finding a level of granularity where you're not either here for nine hours or 35 minutes right. ha has been a little bit tricky on this one. But despite all that, I don't think that's a reason not to talk about something this important, because um, by the time we're done here today, essentially what we're talking about is a roadmap towards um, our modern understanding of what an autonomous state is and how those states interact with each other in a system that more or less holds, holds up to this very day. So I could call that, you know, it's a little bit important. Sounds important. Yeah, it's, you know, it's not bad. Yeah. We have to do a little bit of background first, though, before we get really into things, as we always do on this show, because nothing exists in a void and all of that. And really, probably the best thing that you could do in terms of getting background on the subject is to go back in the archives and listen to a show that I did with Gary on the Protestant Reformation. Because there aren't many shows that are like basically a direct sequel here on HI 101. <laughs> this is pretty much as close as we're going to get, I think. Nice. Because you really need to understand 
certainly not like the theological aspects of the Protestant Reformation, but the um, political ramifications of, of what exactly happened there. Um, we can do a quick little refresher, though, because, uh, you know, I can't really expect everyone to go back and, and listen. It's just you'll have a much better understanding of what's going on if you did happen to listen to that uh, at some point in the relatively uh, recent past. So 15- last time on HI 101. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, 1517. Very disgruntled Catholic monk. Martin Luther uh, sees a lot of things he doesn't like about the church. And he goes and nails what is known as the 95 theses, the 95 things that he thinks is wrong with the Catholic church uh, to the cathedral door. And he thinks of himself as uh, a reformer. He's looking to fix the church, but the church does not take kindly to these criticisms, um, which shocks everyone involved, I'm sure. <laughs> and uh, what ends up, what ends up uh, transpiring is Um, The first successful schism in the Catholic Church since uh, the East-West Schism of 1054, when the Eastern Orthodox Church split away from the Western Catholic Church. And the thing that made that schism in particular successful is the fact that the Eastern Orthodox Church was based in Constantinople, which is a very separate political um, power in the world at this point in time. And it wasn't really functionally possible for um, the Western Catholic Church to just send a crusade after them and, and take them back into the fold and persecute them all as heretics and all of that normal stuff that they would do in this kind of uh, situation. Mm-hmm. Um, not that they didn't try. The, uh, during one of the, the crusades, they actually took a, a detour over to Constantinople to try and take them back. It was extremely unsuccessful. It did not go well. Um, but that's, you know, we're, we're way off track on that one. Um, that's really the reason that it was successful. And within Europe, there were many, many heresies or what they referred to as heresies, um, throughout the, uh, high middle ages that just didn't really gain any traction because as soon as they got popular enough for anyone to really hear about them, they were quashed violently. So what made 1517 any different than that? Mainly, it's the character of the Holy Roman Empire. When you have states that are strongly centralized, um, for example, uh, France, the state just sort of does the quashing on its own in terms of the Protestant Reformation. They just don't really suffer Protestants to exist in their midst. (laughs) They make national policy outlawing it. Right. Holy Roman Empire at this point in time is made up of over 200 principalities. I believe the number is 224. And yes, the Holy Roman Empire is somewhat larger than modern Germany, but it's basically modern Germany. And, you know, imagine carving that up into 224 pieces. They're not very big pieces, especially when you consider that some of the pieces are relatively large. For example, Austria. Um, again, it doesn't really correspond to modern day Austria, but like it's a sizable state. Some of these autonomous political bodies are as small as like a single town. Um, and when we're talking town, I mean like a a town, like it has not achieved city status here. It is too small. There are not enough people and it's just doing its own thing. What's more, there's different types of states within this uh, union and the power differential between them is really keenly felt by a lot of them. The bigger and more powerful ones are clearly uh, wielding a lot more influence in the region than the, you know, single town style ones. And, you know, hypothetically, there's supposed to be some level of parity between these states. It's 
absolutely not a direct thing. This is not like a federal, a federal, um, situation where each of them is sending an equal number of delegates to some sort of parliamentary body. It's not like that. But that being said, the, the emperor, the Holy Roman emperor is technically supposed to be elected. Now, the system through which that happens is really convoluted and, and not democratic at all. Basically, seven of these states uh, are able to nominate a, a member to an electoral body that chooses the next Holy Roman Seven Empire. out of? 224. Right. Uh-huh. That's what I'm saying. This is not even remotely. <laughs> but it's one of those things where it's almost better to just not give anyone the illusion of choice with something like this. Like, maybe just make the, the, uh, the imperial throne just a, a straight hereditary uh, uh office or you know rule with a, an iron fist and whatnot they already can't choose you may as well not have them be mad about that too right and you know the fact is that the same family has controlled this throne for uh centuries at this point and will continue to control this throne for centuries so really the electorate is mainly ceremonial um that being said it's always important to remember with political offices that uh even the ones that are uh you know by convention ceremonial can occasionally at, at you know major junctures in uh, in history wield some actual power and it's usually very shocking when that does happen but it can happen so that's not really lost on anybody here um so back to the the, the protestant reformation what happens is you have all these states who are technically autonomous but are also technically under the reign of the holy roman emperor but the emperor doesn't have a lot of like direct like day-to-day power over the uh the affairs of any of these states you know they they get involved in uh international affairs obviously kind of representing this uh uh this body this league of of germanic uh principalities but um and they they could uh do things like levy taxes and levy troops when needed but the emperor is not really doing anything in terms of like actually directly ruling then you have some of these principalities are members of other larger leagues. Some of them um, are feeling the influence of the papacy, which still has like real world power as well as like spiritual power at this point in time. And all of a sudden you're this guy who is like, you know, the mayor, of, like literally the mayor of a town of like 600 people. And you don't really have a lot of power despite being the head of state of this of this tiny, tiny autonomous body or supposedly autonomous body. Right. Then this reformation breaks out and yes, there is absolutely a religious aspect of this, uh, this conflict. It's one of those things where it's really kind of hard to put yourself in the shoes of how, like just how pious these people were at that point in time. Um, the, you know, it's, it's the average person is like, so much more it's it's so much bigger a part of their lives than uh many of the most pious people around today that it's like it's it's amazing how how uh fundamental a part of their um like life experience it really is so you know i don't want to diminish that in any way shape or form but if you're also the head of state this is an opportunity to kind of wiggle your way out from under the thumb of at least one of these powers who has influence on your life namely the papacy because if you're a Catholic leader, to some extent, you are obliged to obey the Pope in secular matters. So if he goes ahead and starts a war with somebody, 
he expects you as a Catholic leader to provide some troops to this army. Right. Now, what happens if the Pope goes to war with the Holy Roman Emperor? Tough situation. Mm-hmm. Not really a one that we actually have to worry about here. This is more of a hypothetical thing. But what I'm trying to point out here is that you have a lot of like really competing allegiances going on at this point in time. And for the average person, so if you and I are just dirt farmers in one of these little towns that is uh, maybe a couple hundred people, and we have no idea what's going up on up in the clouds in terms of these grand political machinations, the number of different directions that you and I could be pulled in any of these situations is is it's kind of confusing to be honest with you. Right. And there's a point at which people are just going to go like, you know what? I I don't know. I'm just trying to live here, live my life here. And it actually weakens all of these bodies having the ability to pull here because you have that chance of division. So this reformation comes along and some of these leaders see it as an opportunity to go, you know what? I don't have to lift. I don't have to listen to the Pope anymore. We can do our own thing. And I understand that that sounds a little bit cynical, but when you look at which German, uh, well, specifically German states, but states around Europe, which ones converted to Protestantism versus which ones uh, remained Catholic, there's a very, very strong trend. The more centralized the government it is, the more likely it is to stay Catholic. And the further away physically, like geographically from the papacy it is, the more likely it is to convert to Protestantism. Hmm. So... England, at least during the the Protestant Reformation, I mean, obviously it's going to have its own thing with the Anglican Church and whatnot a little bit later on, and that's got a lot more to do with personal vendettas and divorce proceedings and whatnot than it does actual religious uh, disagreements. Um, The early Anglican Church is essentially uh, entirely a Catholic Church, but with the king as a pope, um, and theological changes won't come for some time. Other than that, England actually stays Catholic when the, the whole Reformation goes down, but England has a relatively strong uh, crown. Spain as well, fairly strong crown, at least at the time of the Reformation. It's been recently united under Ferdinand and Isabella, uh, who kind of unite the, the major houses of, uh, or the major kingdoms of Spain, um, and uh, combine their forces to drive out the, the Moors, right, during the Reconquista. Relatively strong, relatively south, relatively centralized, they remain Catholic. Um, likewise, in Italy, even though they're really fragmented, they're really close to the papal states, obviously, so they tend to remain Catholic. Um, countries like uh, Sweden, which is uh, fairly strong uh, or fairly strongly centralized, but very far away from the papacy, ends up actually going Protestant. Hmm. And Within Germany itself, because there's so many of these, you get the most granular picture of how that breaks down. And in general, all these little states, further south south they are, the more likely they are to stay Catholic. The further north they are, the more likely they are to go Protestant. And so as much as this is a, a theological matter, it's absolutely a political one as well. There is a very real uh, element of just military safety involved here. I remember taking a course, it was one of those, like, I was in like third year, but I had to take a first year for a, you know, prerequisite or whatever. Right. Um, the subject of the, the reformation came up and the, the, it was a, it was a discussion post and it was like, the question was something along the lines of like, what were the political ramifications of the, the reformation? And I still, to this day, remember this one guy 
writes in this post, there were no political ramifications. This was entirely a spiritual matter. And I just remember that guy getting dragged so <laughs> hard, even in a first year class, because it is very obvious that there's a political element to it. Right. right. I understand where that, this guy is coming from. Like I kind of felt bad for him, but at the same time, you can't pretend that that's not in there, right? Like yeah. it's there. It's got to be there. Mistake. Mistake. So the Imperial family at this point in time had been for a long time, will be for a long time, are the Habsburgs. And they are one of those names that is going to come up, come up so frequently in, in European history that you kind of don't really think a lot about what that means. But uh, essentially, they're, uh, they're originally a German family, and they're, they're an incredibly Catholic German family. And um, they hold the, the throne of the, the, they hold the imperial throne for a really long time. But actually, at the same time as the Reformation is going on, there's a split because Ferdinand and Isabella had a daughter. Uh, not a son, and the daughter was married to, was married to a Habsburg, which seemed like a really strong move for both families because Spain was up and coming at that point in time. They had, uh, you know, they were suddenly making a lot of money from the New World that had just been discovered. Um, plus, they were a very strongly Catholic family. Like, even in this world of, of hyper religious people, Spain was like especially so. You know what? With the Spanish Inquisition to get rid of all the Moors and Jewish people and everything, they were <laughs> they were real deep into it, man. They were yeah. gung ho. So <laughs> for the Habsburgs, this was like perfect. This is finally, finally, another family that can get on our level here. <laughs> and so they married their uh, their son to the daughter of Ferdinand and Isabella, and uh, her name was Joanna, and she was. Uh, like certifiably insane. Like they had to keep her in her, in, in like a locked room. She was a danger to herself and others. That being said, she did also, um, have a child named, uh, uh, named Charles and Charles ended up in this really unique, uh, situation where, um, after the death of, uh, both Ferdinand and Isabella, Joanna was technically supposed to be the heir, but she was also considered unfit to rule. And mm. so they worked at this, sort of uh concession with the Habsburgs where yes Charles was supposed to be the next Holy Roman Emperor but also could he maybe please come and be um the the king of Spain because we need somebody who knows what they're doing and he's going to technically co-rule with Joanna but he's going to be doing all the actual ruling and right. it's a, it, it's always an interesting thing when something like that comes up in a in a um, royal family because you can't really do much about it other than pretend it's not happening and find very practical and very subtle workarounds. So Charles, who's going to end up being, you know, Charles V, Holy Roman Emperor, actually ends up spending most of his life um, in Spain, ruling Spain. And when the Protestant Reformation happens, part of the reason that all of these German principalities are so uh, willing to take the chance on well, a heresy is that Charles is away and it's kind of like, what's he going to do about it? Right. And I mean, obviously the Habsburgs do attempt to do many, many things about it. And there are multiple religious wars that come up about, or uh, because of the, uh, the reformation. Um, the fact remains that he spends most of it, uh, in Spain working from there. Um, it's safer. He likes it there better. Uh, and the, the real result here is that, Charles spends a good 40 years trying to deal with all of this, and it 
kills him. Like, I, I'm not even really exaggerating that much. There's a, there's a peace treaty in uh, 1555. Basically, all the Protestant uh, German states and all the Catholic German states uh, make their own leagues, and the two leagues are fighting it out, and we don't need to get into all the details. But um, in 1555, uh, there's finally a treaty between the two sides. It's known as the Peace of Augsburg. And the results, the functional result of Augsburg is that both sides agree to an arrangement where each German state has the right to choose their own state religion, either Protestant or Catholic, because it is thought to like a standstill. The, the, the Catholic troops don't have a chance to retake all of these Protestant states. There's just too many of them. Hmm. They're too strong. And they decide that this is the best way of maintaining Catholicism because they're worried that they're going to lose the rest of the German states in this war. Right. Meanwhile, the Protestant states are just fighting for some measure of uh, religious freedom and recognition. So both are kind of uneasily okay with this arrangement. Now, if you are living in a Protestant state and you're Catholic, you basically can move to a Protestant state. Just move, just leave. Um, because we don't have to tolerate Protestants here. This is our own state and it is a Catholic one. I don't know if I mixed those up in the uh, you, telling you, of that. Did you, I? You did, but that's okay. Cause I knew what you were saying. Yeah. It, it's it, anyways, the, the, the point is each, each state has its own state religion. It does not have to tolerate the other religion. If you are of the other religion, you're allowed to move to a state that matches your own. Right. It all gets very confusing as you can see from my, attempt at a description, <laughs> but that's functionally the, uh, the result. Now there are complications. For example, some of these States, you know, I, I don't want to give the impression that they're all ruled the same because the governments of each of these States is very, very different depending on where you are. There's this type called a bishopric, which is where a state is literally under the governmental control of a Bishop of the Catholic church. Hmm. Um, so essentially a direct theocracy. That being said, some of these bishops actually converted to Catholicism. So there's like special provisions for these states where are the bishoprics being returned to um, uh, Catholicism as the state religion. And, you know, does the bishop have to leave or not? And, you know, th weird little concessions like that, but we don't really need to get into the weeds on those things. Um, in general, each state gets to choose their own religion and each state is allowed to change their own religion. Um if that is what the head of state decides to do. But at all times, mobility between these states is absolutely essential. Right. Charles abdicates his throne in 1556, so the, the next year, and he just moves to a monastery. He's literally done. Like, he's absolutely done. Is this a stress thing? Yes. He spent the last 40 years trying to figure out how to keep his entire Holy Roman Empire from crumbling to the ground around him. Um, this is mainly bad timing he just happened to be wrong uh, born at the wrong time he did the best he could this is a a, a monumentally disruptive uh, event in european history um yeah it got to him it really really got to him and he spent the next two years in a monastery and then just died of exhaustion um this again literally killed him right the piece was not perfect though there are a few things that were not really well uh, covered uh, in the piece. Number one is Calvinism. 
and uh, also known as the Reformed Church, but most people know it as Calvinism. Calvin himself hated that term. Um, but it's a sort of second wave version of Protestantism that is functionally different enough from like mainstream Lutheranism that um, you wouldn't just really fit under the Lutheran umbrella. Both Lutherans and Catholics thought of them as heretical. Mm. And at the time of the peace, they were barely, you know, it was almost entirely centered in Geneva in Switzerland, but it was just starting to spread out into Europe. And this was like a, a, a potential uh, issue for the future because, um, okay, we've made provisions for Lutherans and we've made pro uh, provisions for Catholics. What if a state wants to convert to uh, Calvinism? That isn't, that isn't explained in the peace. That isn't provided for in the peace. Right. So, uh-oh. You can choose one of these two options. Yes. And and even even things that, you know, obviously did exist at the time, just like simply weren't considered under the peace. So you wouldn't have a German state, for example, that would make uh, Judaism their state religion that just wouldn't be allowed. That would not ever stand. Um, same for basically any other religion other than the specific two that we mentioned. So you're not going to have an Eastern Orthodox church pop up. Um, yeah, it just won't be allowed. As part of Charles's abdication, though, he decided to basically make it easier on his heirs in terms of the amount of responsibility that the um, basically the head of the Habsburg family would have. Um, he gave his son, Philip II, uh, uh, Spain, making Spain like the main seat of the Habsburg family or, or the what they called the senior branch of the Habsburg fam family. Um, because it's through the like patrilineal line. Right. Right. And then he gave his brother Ferdinand, uh, Austria and Bohemia, um, Austria. It, it, those are the two kingdoms that, uh, had the traditional seats of the, uh, Holy Roman empire, uh, Vienna and Prague. Um, Bohemia is basically modern day Czech Republic. Again, let's not get too, Let's not scrutinize these too much because it's really not. The borders are very different, but it gives you an idea of at least where it is. Right. The throne tended to move around a lot in this time period. And uh, you're going to get states that are known as uh, Palatine states. Uh, Palatine from the root word, same root word as palace. And these are states that um, are basically in direct service to the emperor. Um, they're a little bit less autonomous. And these tended to be the states that provide the uh, electors that would... Um, you know, elect the next emperor every time it came around, even though they always elected his son. Right. Um, <laughs> but yeah, there's this whole really complex sort of Byzantine system around how the Holy Roman Emperor works. Um, keep in mind that the new emperor is always supposed to be um, coronated by the Pope to give them like divine uh, power as well as uh, secular power. Right. So that's very carefully tied into their Catholicism, right? You need that, um, uh, that support of the papacy uh, in order to hold the throne of the Holy Roman Empire. So, um, yeah, this is see, we're barely we're barely getting started. We're all get, already getting things pretty twisted around here. I promise this is all going to pay off eventually. <laughs> now, in the process of this abdication, Charles had also created something known as the Spanish Netherlands as like a, a smaller kind of administrative area. And by smaller, I mean, it's actually quite large. It's the majority of modern day uh, Belgium, as well as, um, you know, pretty uh, substantial parts of uh, Luxembourg, the Netherlands, bits of France and Germany or modern day France and Germany. And this territory is 
this massive section that had during these religious wars splintered off from the Holy Roman Empire and had fought for uh, a measure of independence. And when this was created, it was uh, Catholic and directly ruled by uh, the Habsburgs. But very quickly afterwards, um, a number of districts, um, basically modern day Netherlands, a little bit bigger, but still um, split off and uh, revolted. And uh, this is in 1568. So it's really only uh, a dozen years later, basically. They wanted to go Protestant. And the trouble here is, okay, we have a, we have this provision that independent states are allowed to choose their own religion. What about divisions within a sovereign state that want to basically secede for religious reasons? Right. And they've a, kind of set a precedent. Right. But the question is, like, what's the what, which level of um, government is indivisible? Is, is the question there, right? Right. Because it's divided up into districts, and it was complete districts that are trying to split off. There's a fairly clear geographic uh, divide between these Protestant and Catholic states, and there's a pretty clear, for lack of a better term, ethnic divide between these two areas. You could make the argument that states under the Holy Roman Empire are all part of the empire, but some of the states are allowed to go their own way. So why wouldn't districts within this uh, administrative area not be allowed to go their own way? Well, right. obviously, the uh, Spanish Habsburgs, who were still controlling this area, did not see it the same way. Um, and they went to war trying to suppress this, uh, um, well, as, as they saw it, like a, an insurrection or revolt. Um this is going to be known as the 80 years war. So it's going to go on for a while. Just heads up. That's like a lot more time than the war we're even talking about. It is. However, interestingly enough, uh, it starts in 1568 and the war we're talking about runs, uh, 1618 to 1648. You'll notice that 1648 is exactly 80 years after 1568. Huh. This is not a coincidence. <laughs> The rest of the 16th century involves like numerous religious upheavals, right? Like this, right? Like Augsburg does not really manage to address all of this, partially because a lot of these upheavals aren't just within the Holy Roman Empire itself, where most of these religious wars took place, but also partially because Augsburg doesn't address all the things it needs to address. You know, uh, Switzerland is is a majority um, uh, Calvinist. How do you deal with that in the framework of Augsburg? Uh, you just kind of don't. So I can understand for political reasons why the peace was put in place, but how did the papacy get behind this? Like, I, I would think this would just be a non-starter for them. Oh, they hated it. Absolutely, they hated it. They saw it as a temporary inconvenience in, you know, along the, the path to finally suppressing these heretics. Uh, they would, um, there, there's this whole concept that, you know, I wasn't really even planning on getting into, but known as the counter reformation in which, um, basically it, it was, it was twofold. Number one, the, the church was looking inward and going like, should we make changes on some of this stuff? People are angry about maybe, maybe indulgences are a bad idea, stuff like that. Um, but there's also this, uh, well, there's this creation of a, an order of priests known as the Jesuits. And the Jesuits were originally conceived as this like guerrilla counter-reformation force that would go out and essentially try to do mission work to these Lutheran 
um, communities, convincing them to come back to Catholicism. And the, uh, the, the, the Jesuits today have this like, um, sort of a, a reputation for being like extremely well-learned and like extremely, uh, like academically intelligent. And the roots of all of this was that in general, priests during the reformation were getting completely stomped by these, uh, Lutheran scholars who actually knew the Bible inside and out, because one of the, the, the fundamental tenets of Lutheranism is reading the Bible yourself. Whereas the majority of Catholic people, uh, I mean, well, number one, they were listening to the Bible being read to them in Latin. And so chances are they have no idea what's actually being said. Um, there was a, a very strong tradition of like the interpretation of the word of God through the priest as a conduit. And so you would have this guy stand up there at the front, say a bunch of stuff in Latin, maybe tell you in the common tongue what he was talking about. But obviously he's going to tell you in his own words. And, you know, it's, it's this directness of uh, relationship with scripture that was um, both appealing about Lutheranism and um, kind of dangerous for people who are Catholic because Lutheran um, missionaries would go out and they would pull specific passages that were counter to common Catholic practices. Uh, so they'd go out and be like, okay, well, your priest is doing this, but what about this passage in the Bible where it says blah, blah, blah. And people will go like, oh, well, this is the word of God. Maybe this is an issue. The Jesuits were developed specifically to counter that stuff. Let's stop up all the theological holes that we have in this sinking ship <laughs> um, and start fighting back on the same terms. So that was a major portion of it. So anywhere that was a, a Catholic state, they were extremely passionate about enforcing that. Um, religious freedom was not a, a core tenet of these, these places. And then in Lutheran states, they were essentially sneaking across borders and trying to convert people. But, you know, Lutherans were doing the same the other way too. So I think it's one of those situations where you're pretty sure you're on the right side and you've got some help. So, um, how permanent they saw that situation. Um, I, I don't think they were maybe as worried about it as they would be at the, at the end of the story. Gotcha. So, yeah, this whole war in Spain or sorry, this whole war in the Spanish Netherlands went pretty badly for Spain. Honestly, um, the main reasons would be number one, the, the splinter groups were getting a lot of support from Protestant states within the Holy Roman empire. And number two, the Spanish had a long way to go from Spain to, you know, essentially Bel Belgium or the Netherlands. When you said the Protestant states were the north, so mm -hmm. they're a lot, they're going to have an easier time. Yes. Helping out. Exactly. They're much, much closer. And so that, that makes it really difficult for the Habsburgs. And I mean, the, um, the lesser branch of the family in, in, uh, in Austria were providing aid, obviously, but like you could only go so far because you run the risk of fighting your own citizens at that point. Citizen isn't quite the right word. Subject, I suppose, is what I was looking for, um, which is in direct violation of Augsburg because the emperor isn't allowed to take military action against any German states for religious purposes. Right. So they're in a bit of a bind. Uh, it goes so badly, in fact, for the Spanish that in 1609, they're forced to negotiate uh, a ceasefire, essentially, um, with the Netherlands. Um Basically, Spain traded recognition of the independence of the Dutch Republic um, for 
you know, a, a chance to go back and re regroup. Um, and that recognition of uh, that recognition of independence was exactly what the Spanish Netherlands have been looking for, right? That uh, that acknowledgement of their independence, uh, uh, their independent statehood, because under the rules of Augsburg, that means that they should be able to control their own religious uh, destiny. Now, is that functionally how this is going to work? Absolutely not. This is known as the Twelve Years' Truce. It's coming up in twelve years. Like everybody knows what's going to happen in twelve years, right? Like this is not a mystery. Spain's coming back, and all of Europe knows this. It's basically a ticking time bomb. Um, everyone knows there's going to be military action. It's just a question of how it goes down. Now, in general, Catholic um, nations and Protestant uh, states are allying with each other in terms of like really mundane day-to-day -day things like trade or uh, in our case, right of passage uh, for armies. So Europe is so, it's it's almost hard to think of as people who grew up in North America, this idea of like needing to negotiate the ability to move your army through another state to get somewhere. Um, but that's a thing you needed to do. You needed to go to your neighbors and go, listen, I'm going to march 20,000 people through your territory, but don't worry about it. We're good. We're just going over there. We're fighting those guys. We good? We're good. Except it's going to take a while and we're going to need stuff. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But they'll pay for it. It's fine. <laughs> um, but this rite of passage is a very, like, it's a very real thing that they have to figure out. And the Spanish basically have a way through all of these, um, all of these allies to get to uh, the newly formed Dutch Republic to start up this war again. Except for one. There is one spot where what's known as the Spanish Road has a break in it. And it is through this little state called the Electorate of Palatinate, which is, which means that they are, well, the full name is the Electorate of the Palatinate of the Rhine. And it is this little state. It's basically where modern day Heidelberg is. And this state is one of the seven states who elects the new emperor. And not that long before all of this goes down, their uh, their leader decided to convert to Calvinism, Ooh. which was a very contentious thing in and of itself because there were four Catholic leaders and three Protestant leaders on the electorate before, and this ca this Catholic leader converts not to Lutheranism, which would have been seen as a major win for Protestants because technically the next time an emperor died they could they could elect a protestant emperor which would have been just wow that would have been a story because what happened pope's not gonna anyways yeah. the whole thing is gonna be a mess but pope's, yeah pope's not gonna be mm -mm. into that no he might not show for the coronation yeah but instead of calvinists it's a calvinist in place so now you have three catholics but three that's protestant, not one of the choices exactly <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And so this little tiny state, it's so small. There's nothing. Go I shouldn't say that. That's terrible. But like, well, it must in the be, grand uh, scheme of things. It must be at least substantive enough to be one of the seven. It is. But that's more for like historical reasons, because the state is basically under the thumb of the uh, of, of the imperial family. This is mm. one of the seats of of imperial power when he just wants to use that. Uh, that castle for his own uses he just goes there and uses it and right. no one can say anything and in return they get this this mostly ceremonial role but now they're 
no, they're Calvinists. And it's this like, they're a swing vote. They can go either way. They can do whatever they want. They've got so much power for such a small state. They have so much power that um, King James VI slash first of Scotland and England. I'm not sure if you're familiar with that whole thing. He was James VI of Scotland, but was also given the uh, English throne where he became James I. That's why the weird naming convention anyway right. uh he had a daughter elizabeth uh elizabeth stewart this is not queen elizabeth or whatever but um he actually married his daughter elizabeth to uh frederick v the king of uh Pal- or the, the elector of palatinate um against uh normal convention because usually the daughter of a, a king would only be married to other royalty and this person is not royalty he's he's nobility but usually that's not enough to cut it for like a king's daughter right but he saw so much uh, like power um, potential in this place that he married his daughter to this person. I mean, huge power potential, but also conflict. Yes. Well, yeah, and I mean, England is on the up and up at this point in time. This is you know post the post Elizabethan era, early Stuart era. Um, you know, they're they're getting a navy going and whatnot. So uh, they're looking to kind of stir things up a little bit on the continent. Um, it's been a while since they actually did that. Trying to think what the last major time would be. It would probably be the Hundred Years' War. I, I might be wrong. Don't quote me on that. But uh, they don't tend to do well on the on the continent at this right, point. Right. Frederick V is in this like uniquely powerful situation in in the Holy Roman Empire, and he's you know lucky in one way that he holds so much potential. Um, in this other way, he's dead in the center of the crosshairs of the Spanish Habsburgs. Because he could let them through, which would be a problem because he would be essentially betraying um, a a brand new state that is founded on the principle of religious freedom. And I I should be clear, yes, they're revolting in the name of Protestantism, but the Dutch Republic was taking things a lot further than all these other single religion states. They weren't just Protestant. They They were practicing real religious freedom, which means... Not only can Catholics and Protestants practice there, but so can Calvinists and so can Jewish people and so can Orthodox people. There was no restriction on this. I I mean, legally no restriction. I'm sure functionally and socially there were there were restrictions in place. But um, the, the fact that a state in the 17th century was openly welcoming of, of Jewish people is uh, sadly a, a very, very, very rare thing. Um it was a real statement for Frederick V to just throw that under the bus would be like a pretty bad luck. So he's in a really, like a really difficult spot. Right. But defying the Spanish Habsburgs seems like a bad idea also. Mm hmm. Yep. I'm not sure there's an easy choice here. In 1617, uh, we have our next kind of big setup thing is going to happen, which is that um, the Holy Roman Emperor, uh, Matthias, Uh, who's also king of Bohemia, as we talked about earlier. He's getting older, and he's not doing terribly well. And he doesn't have a direct heir. And he's gotten old enough and unwell enough to realize that he probably isn't going to get an heir. And so arrangements must be made for the continuation of the Habsburg dynasty. And he decides to choose his cousin, uh, Ferdinand II of Austria as his successor. What you need to know about Matthias is that 
he found the best way to rule over his empire was to cleave pretty closely to the Peace of Augsburg. Just let everybody do their own thing. It's a losing prospect to get into a religious war as far as he's concerned. And it worked fairly well for him for the most part. His cousin, Ferdinand, uh, felt a little bit differently. Ferdinand was actually uh, educated by Jesuits. That we, had, we talked about them a little bit earlier. And was quite fervent in his anti-Lutheranism. And he saw no real reason other than convention that he as emperor should tolerate Protestantism in the Holy Roman Empire. Now, he had advisors who explained to him how exactly that needs to work and why he couldn't just sort of enforce Catholicism everywhere. But Matthias dying would also mean that he would become directly the king of Bohemia. Now, Austria was already Catholic. He had made sure of that. Um, I think they had always been Catholic majority. Um, but Bohemia was very much Lutheran. They're very, very Protestant and very much liked it that way. So now we have a new king who mm -hmm. does not recognize the Lutherans. Exactly. Being in charge. And is within his personal right to change the state religion. Right. Because that's Bohemia. how it works. It's the it's the official representative. Yes. Now, he's not king yet. Matthias has not yet died. That being said, he feels that he's within his rights to just sort of let everybody know how this is going to go. In May of 1618, he decides to send uh, two emissaries and a secretary for them to Prague to meet with Bohemian nobility. And they're being sent there essentially to uh, act as representatives of uh, Ferdinand and to let them know how things are going to go in the future. Now, the, Bohem the, the Bohemian nobles meet basically with the intention of talking with this guy, seeing what they can arrange, negotiating. And they very quickly realize on the very first day that they're there, May 23rd, that these men aren't here to negotiate. They're here to lay down the law. These Bohemian nobles don't appreciate this. And they were the kind of people who, when things aren't happening, they just sort of make them happen. They were men of action, not of words, and decided that the easiest way to deal with all of this was to take all three of these representatives and throw them out the window. Defenestration! This is known as the defenestration of Prague. Yes! Dude, I was there. I was in the place where this happened. That's how I know about this. They fell three stories. And yeah. they're three large stories, as you can attest to. It's about 70 feet. I, I saw out that window. All three survived. Yeah, because it's, it's not that big of a drop. I don't know. I wouldn't want to fall 70 well, feet, man. I, it, lo it, looked, it looked a distance, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But still. Um, still, all three survived. But this... Uh, incredibly insulting episode is uh, the beginning of the th uh, Thirty Years' War. This is the event that kicks it off right here. They threw three guys out a window to their horrible embarrassment, and more importantly, to the embarrassment of uh, the future Holy Roman Emperor. Right. Soon, Bohemia is in open revolt. They completely reject Ferdinand as their rightful ruler. Um, which isn't really quite what they can do, but, the, you know, the rules have been a little off ever since the whole Reformation thing. And they decide to acclaim a new king. And they choose for their new king, 
Frederick V of the Palatinate. Oh boy. Making it even more important. But wait, he he's a Calvinist. Yes. So it's not quite exactly what they would want, right? Because they're Lutheran. This is a political protest. This is a gotcha. moment of uh, taking the symbolism of the Palatinate standing in the way of the Habsburgs uh, taking over um, this new Dutch Republic and creating really real action about it. Um, it's not so much about him being Calvinist. It's about him not being a Habsburg and being a, a man standing in the direct line of the Habsburgs and holding fast. Now this man who is elector of a tiny little state that just happened to be in the way of the, uh, the Spanish empire was king of one of the largest kingdoms in the Holy Roman empire. And in very short order, uh, conflict spreads throughout the Holy Roman Empire as states line up either for or against the Bohemian revolutionaries. So before he was just nobility, in what order did it happen in that he married into nobility and became nobility? Uh, you mean royalty? He was originally nobility. Oh, sorry, sorry. He was, he was nobility. Yes. He would have become royalty when he married into the... Not quite how royalty works. No? Okay. No, because it, if he had been female and married a, a male heir of the the royal crown then yes he would have been become royal but as he was noble and married a royal woman uh he remained noble however now he's being made king right which makes him nobility yes um, oh wait no it makes him royalty sorry yes royalty okay both of us okay. are just in circles yep um you know what i think this is a pretty good place to take a quick break cool the, cool. War, the war is now on we, we can get, get our, our heads around this yeah we can figure out what the difference between royalty and nobility is <laughs> and uh we'll be right back Back on HI101 here with Colin Oliver. Hello. And three guys just got tossed out of a window. <laughs> and it was a very major international episode because those three guys happened to be representatives of the Holy Roman Emperor. And Ferdinand was not, he was not happy with what had just happened. Um, he was a, a key factor in whipping up uh, Catholic uh, opposition to the Bohemian um, revolutionaries. Uh, and understandably so. This was supposed to be his new kingdom as soon as Matthias passed away, and they weren't going to have any of it. Now, Matthias did die in 1619, so the next year, and this just emboldens the, the Protestant states that lined up behind Bohemia, um, largely because, number one, Matthias had been ex explicitly um, supportive of uh, the existence of Protestant states within the Holy Roman Empire. He had actually uh, issued what was known as the Letter of Majesty in 1609, in which he basically ensured um, religious autonomy for all states within the empire from him as Holy Roman Emperor. So he was he was promising to all these people, and and this is the this is the specific uh, rule we talked about before about the uh, the emperor not supporting um, violence against uh, Germans uh, for religious reasons. He explicitly uh, made a promise to never attack anyone militarily for religious reasons. So why would he choose as a successor someone with such firm? Uh, uh, opinions and like such a firm stance in in any direction because you said he was kind of like he'd like to play a little bit on 
maybe not on the fence, but like didn't enforce things one way or the other. Why would he choose such a strict Catholic successor? He was the closest blood relative. Oh, I see. This was not a... He didn't choose this person strategically. This was a... Yeah, this isn't a, like a five good emperors type situation where they're, you know, grooming a new heir from outside the family, but seems to be like the most qualified to, to take over. Uh, right. It's not, it's not that. There were rules being followed here. Yes, very strict rules gotcha. about, you know, male heirs and whatnot. So that's, that's really what he's going off of here. And um, it's not that Ferdinand was... Um, poor choice as a, you know, from a, from a purely, um, political or administrative point of view. Um, he was very competently leading Austria at the time he had, uh, experience. It's, it's not, it's not as though he, he didn't know what he was doing or it was green. It's just that he was the wrong fit for Bohemia and Bohemia was v more importantly, the wrong fit for him. Right. Uh, with a smaller state, they probably would have just rolled over and converted to Catholicism and either continued to practice Protestantism and private like so many residents in the holy roman empire did or simply moved somewhere else but the bohemian nobility did not roll that way there were enough cultural differences there that their fit into the holy roman empire was already um not quite as cozy as it was for some of the more um traditionally german states right. um and they had no they, they had no problem uh, expressing their opinions about their new king um so part of it is that, you know, they, they just accepted Matthias as a more accepting ruler for them. But part of it is also that, you know, not being a direct descendant does put a bit of a dent in your uh, reputation as an heir. It's not much of one, but rulers have been overthrown for less. It's an opportunity. Right. It's something. We mentioned before choosing Frederick V as the uh, as the new ruler of Bohemia. There's one other reason that they chose him uh, that I forgot to mention. Frederick's father, Frederick IV, was actually the leader who founded the Protestant League during the religious wars of the previous century. The Protestant League hadn't really been active since the Peace of Augsburg, but if you're going to pick somebody to start it back up, you know, seems appropriate it really does there's a lot of like there's a lot of symbolism involved in the choice of of uh, frederick so there is that as well now that being said as almost preordained as all of this stuff sounds bohemia didn't only ask frederick for help or only offer the crown to frederick hmm. they actually talked to a bunch of other protestant leaders um like a bunch of them five or six hey you want to be king as long as you help us out, you can have the throne. What are your qualifications? Basically. <laughs> Just hopped on LinkedIn, did a little headhunting. Um, the Austrians were basically intercepting ever, every letter that left Bohemia in this period. And they found this out. And they just basically made it public, hoping to hurt their credibility. Um, hey, how bad do you think they really want you to be their king? They asked these four other schmucks. <laughs> And it worked to some degree. Yeah. Um, it, it certainly cooled a couple of uh, contenders off of the idea. But that being said, this whole thing is quickly growing beyond a, a small um, contained regional issue. This is quickly growing into another religious war that 
uh, you know, quickly enough that I think it shows that it's been lurking there for some time, ready to flare back up. The Reformation was never really properly resolved. Augsburg um, helped things, and it did so for half a century. Uh, it made for, at least in relative terms, of a fairly peaceful half century for the majority of the Holy Roman Empire. But there hasn't been any formal recognition of Protestantism as a uh, as a as a valid religion, at least from the the Catholic side of things. And there's still this hope that you know we can we can rope them back in. They'll come back eventually. We'll fix this. <laughs> and it's kind of clear that the Protestants are um, looking to establish that legitimacy in a more con concrete way, just as the Catholic leaders are looking for a way to militarily. Um, fix this problem that they have, which is still relatively new and seems new enough that maybe they can reverse it. I mean, realistically, that is not an option at this point. Far too many people are established in far too many powerful places for it to, to really go completely away. But um, by God, they're going to try. Right. Um, Austria itself was actually divided by this conflict. It turns out that a lot of the nobles were practicing Protestants and uh, it tore the state into a uh, uh, you know, a status of civil war, um, which basically weakened uh, Ferdinand right out of the gate. He's all of a sudden dealing with an uprising at home and doesn't really have the attention to turn to Bohemia to really uh, take matters into his hands there, um, which led the Catholic League. By the way, we're going to talk about things like Protestant League and Catholic League uh, fairly often because I don't have time to go into the dozens and dozens of states that get involved or leave these uh, arrangements as time goes on. So just for our own sanity and for the sake of uh, at least an attempt at clarity, uh, we're going to talk about many, many groups in very broad and vague terms. Fair enough. Um, there are 224 of these. So... Yeah, the, the Catholic League is off to a bit of a weak start because the Holy Roman Emperor can't put his full weight behind their cause. He's too busy dealing with problems at home. Mm. Um, he's already in a succession crisis in terms of the actual imperial seat. Um, it's not a full crisis, but like the previous emperor just died. That doesn't just, you know, it's a bit more than a road bump or a speed bump. It, it takes a bit to get through. Previous emperor died, and you've now lost a part of that kingdom. You've lost Bohemia. Well, you lost Bohemia, and you're fighting for the kingdom that you were previously king of. Yeah. Um, so that whole thing is a real mess. It gets so bad so quickly um, for the Catholics that Vienna is actually put under siege in short order. Remember how Frederick V had married Elizabeth Stuart? Um, England is pretty firmly protestant at this point in time and the british crown has always had interests on the continent this was seen as a bit of a an opportunity for england especially from scotland a lot of volunteers crossed over to help the bohemians and tens of thousands of these scottish soldiers uh poured into uh austria to help support the bohemians in a fight against uh, vienna so it got bad for them fast, very fast, fast enough that you would think this is going to be a very short war and not one that lasts exactly 30 years. Right. Likewise, Bohemia reaches out to the, the Prince of Transylvania, a guy named Gabriel Bethlen, and they say, we need your help. They're, they're also Protestant, by the way. And 
Bethlin basically says, okay, yeah, we'll help you out. No problem. But instead of coming to kind of direct aid of the uh, Bohemians, he first sends envoys to the Ottomans. And as you can see, this is quickly starting to turn international and quickly starting to spin out of control. In fact, there's a lot of things that you could maybe compare to World War One in that fashion. It's a fairly localized, um, uh, fairly contained uh, uh, little crisis that because of various um, uh, diplomatic, yeah, and, yeah, yeah, diplomatic obligations spins out of control as right. all these people are cashing in favors. So. Bethlehem goes to the Ottomans and says, hey, we want help. And the Ottomans go, yeah, absolutely. I had a chance to disrupt Europe, please. Like, let's let's do it. They offer 60,000 uh, cavalry huh. to the uh, the Transylvanians to help uh, fight them, uh, to, to help fight the, uh, uh, the Holy Roman Empire. And they go, we know that the Poles, the, the Polish-Lithuanian League at this point is very powerful. Like it's ex an extremely strong military force. They go, we know that they are allied with the Habsburgs. They're Catholic. Um, and we know that they're going to be a problem for you because um, Bohemia is on the, the east uh, side of the Holy Roman Empire, closest to Poland. We know you guys are concerned about all of this. Um, well, even closer to Transylvania, though, that's who we're talking to. And so the Ottomans go, we've always kind of wanted a piece of some of that tell you what um give us yearly tribute and we'll invade poland and the transylvanians agree and the uh the ottomans dump four hundred thousand troops into poland so well, the, poland, six, the sixty thousand were specifically for transylvanians to support. fight uh in the habsburgs directly yes four hundred thousand yes it should not be understated how powerful Poland is at this point in time. They're very, very powerful. All right, then. So powerful that, in fact, this military action goes on for two years um, with a couple of major victories on each side, but is essentially fought to a stalemate by the Poles. But it ties up the Poles for uh, two full years, 1620 to 1621. It was very helpful for the uh, early war for the Protestants. Ferdinand's forced to ask for aid from his nephew, Philip IV of Spain, who's the senior branch, but is his nephew. Anyways, things get weird with the Habsburgs around now. And Ferdinand obliges. He ends up sending an army of 25,000 to uh, invade uh, Bohemia. But the Bohemian army within the state right now is about 30,000. And it's not looking great for the Habsburgs. Frederick is now taken direct control of bohemia he's actually traveled to bohemia he's taken command of this this army he is for all intents and purposes the king as was offered to him and and as was acclaimed by the bohemians so he's decided to you know agree to all of this he's agreed to lead them and uh he's now king of bohemia for all intents and purposes um but this this force that comes from the the Spanish Habsburgs uh, along with other members of the the Catholic League when they uh, invade uh, Bohemia, even though they're at uh, inferior numbers, uh, in 1620, um, November 8th, there's a, a massive battle. It's known as the Battle of White Mountain. And despite inferior numbers, despite a number of factors working against them, um, the Catholics are actually victorious. They managed to defeat uh, Frederick and the, uh, the Protestant armies. And um, they only took 700 casualties in the process. 
it was a massively one-sided battle. Mm. Frederick fled from Prague, was actually given the name the Winter King because he was only king for one winter. <laughs> uh, it's a cool name, but they're basically mocking him. <laughs> and he's going to spend the rest of, well, the rest of his life agitating from abroad, trying to raise troops for the Protestants. I think it's okay to skip ahead to say it never really works out the way he's hoping. He's mm. never going to get Bohemia back, and he's never really going to get um, the electorate of Palatinate back either. Those are both pretty much gone forever. Which is a little bit sad for this guy, and a little bit anticlimactic given how important he was. Yeah. But that being said, he wasn't an unimportant advocate for the Protestant cause. I mean, especially his tie to England made him extremely valuable and sort of his story as a tragedy as like what he could have been was extremely compelling for raising troops 27 of the insurrection leaders were executed by um the the habsburgs um over three quarters of the nobility uh, of bohemia fled the the kingdom um to avoid further punishment they essentially operated under a skeleton government after that. New uh, positions were appointed to Catholic lords. Ferdinand took control of Bohemia back. The rebellion was essentially uh, quashed in that one uh, battle, at least within Bohemia proper. And the Viennese siege was cut off, driven back uh, into Bohemia, dispersed. Um, in this kind of one very quick swoop, um, the Habsburgs managed to not only relieve pressure on their own capital, but to uh, entirely eliminate the original cause of this war. And again, you would think that this would be the end of a fairly brief war and a fairly um, uh, contained regional conflict. But now that religious tensions have flared up as much as they have, it's just not how things are going to go. Mm. Um that's what happens when you have so many states in such a small area. You can defeat one. You can defeat a dozen. There's still more. There's always going to be more. And the prospect of negotiating peace with that many states is uh, staggeringly large. It's very, very difficult. They did it once. They did by basically telling everyone they could have what they wanted. Right. Which is not going to happen again. Not when things are in motion the way that they're in motion. Right. You have a lot of hurt feelings that are involved. And you have uh, two sides who are both seeing this as an opportunity to expand their own particular brand of influence across the rest of the Holy Roman Empire. That's a tough situation. The Platinate itself was given to um, uh, Duke Maximilian of Bavaria. So a Catholic Southern German uh, noble. There's going to be flare-ups in that particular state throughout the war, and it's mostly only going to be notable because it's that state. This is no longer a major player because the war in the Dutch Republic is no longer a major focus of what's going on in Europe as a whole. There's bigger things going on. Protest Protestantism was outlawed in Bohemia and in the Palatinate, um, both became fully Catholic states and would more or less remain that way for the rest of the war. So the original peace was broken because outlawing a religious choice was not a thing. Mm, that's one way you could look at it, and it's certainly the way that the Protestants looked at it. 
Right. In another way, Bohemia was always supposed to be Ferdinand's uh, state. And as head right. of state, he was supposed to have that. And Frederick, who was derelict of duty by overthrowing the rightful king of Bohemia, uh, was lawfully banished from both Bohemia and the Palatinate uh, and could be said to be uh, uh, treasonous in his duty as electorate and as Palatinate. Um, both of those things uh, require a, a level of devotion to the Holy Roman Emperor that he did not display in declaring himself king in the Holy Roman Emperor's own kingdom. Right. So for um, another noble to be appointed head of the Palatinate, I don't think is necessarily a stretch in terms of um, things that are within the purview of the Holy Roman Emperor's power. The reasons behind it are certainly transparent, but uh, at the same time, you know, who hit, who hit for who first. Right. Yeah. That, that particular, uh, move on the part, uh, on the part of Ferdinand, I, I don't think is terribly questionable personally. Makes but sense. Yeah, no, I, I get that. That being said, uh, for the most part, yeah, Augsburg is pretty much right out the window. Um, the thing about Augsburg is that it assumes that these people are only invading each other for religious reasons. And the Thirty Years' War is absolutely more complicated than that. It's not just religious reasons. That is one of the reasons. Of course, it's one of the reasons. But there's already wars happening, and it's over dynastic issues. It's over um, political revolts. And if some leaders change in political revolt, and if that happens to affect the religions of the states that are involved, well, there's only so much you can do about that. Um what do you want a Catholic Lord to do appoint a Protestant to try and maintain some sort of balance? Yeah. Right. I think that's maybe a bit of a stretch in terms of what Augsburg was designed to do. Um, there was no guarantee within that agreement that, you know, that said there's 224 States, 112 of them are going to be Protestant and then 112 are going to be Catholic. That's not how that works. So yeah, it's, it's, uh, those are, those are peacetime rules. And we are not at peace. The next order of business is to go to the Prince of Transylvania, who is causing lots of trouble, um, well, with their 60,000 cavalry from the Ottomans. Uh, and basically, they, they, they send envoys to them and go, listen, why are we even fighting here? Like, you're not really, like, this isn't, no, don't do that. This isn't really your fight. I understand why you're trying to support um, the, the Bohemians. They're fairly close geographically they're they they have a, a historical relationship but the uh the Habsburgs basically say look we stop fighting and you get a whole bunch of territory in uh the kingdom of Hungary how does that sound and the prince goes done yep that sounds great and that's pretty much it for them in the in the conflict wow that was easy a little bit so since Transylvania was the sole connection to the Ottomans. Yeah, the Ottomans were pretty much done too. This war is very much divided into a few discrete phases. And what we're doing right now is we're wrapping up the initial phase, which is the the Bohemian Revolt, essentially. It sounds like everything is just wrapping up nicely and and that's it. Doesn't it though? Yeah. Doesn't it? Um, This, this, uh, this treaty with Transylvania puts away a lot of problems. Um, it frees Poland back up. It gets the Ottomans out of the picture. It gets Transylvania out of the picture. Uh, 
Bohemia is no longer really an issue. It takes the pressure off of Austria. Everything's looking pretty good. Heck, maybe we'll go to the Spanish Netherlands and clean that whole thing up next, right? It's just looking peachy for the Catholics. <laughs> Over the next four years or so after 1621, um, there's still military uh, operations proceeding, but this is mainly kind of small to medium-sized mercenary groups that are being raised by one or sometimes multiple uh, Protestant uh, German states um, to oppose the Habsburgs directly. One of the things that you'll find interesting about this, I'm not sure if it's occurred to you yet or not, is that the emperor doesn't have his own army. Hmm. That's because the imperial army is not a standing entity. It's not like a, a an independent entity. Normally, when the Holy Roman Emperor needs to field an army, he goes to every state in the empire and requests that they provide military forces, and then they all march under the imperial banner. He's got his Austrian troops, which he has direct control of. Technically, now he has Bohemian troops, but does he trust them? Not really. Yeah. And half of his states are in revolt. They're they're Protestant. They won't give him anything. So he's in kind of an odd position militarily. Peace has not yet been made with the Protestant League, and they keep throwing troops at him. And he can't really lock them down to make that peace because he can't field a large enough army to oppose them because how do you oppose them? I mean... If you're going after Bohemia, you march on Prague, you set siege to Prague, you wait until the city falls, and then the war is over, Bohemia is done, you take it over. It didn't come to that in this particular case, but that's what you would do. How do you force dozens and dozens of states into a ceasefire or into a treaty? Do you set dozens and dozens of sieges? I mean, that's one way to do it, but... Can you set dozens and dozens of sieges? Right. If you, a, if you don't even have enough soldiers for that. Exactly. Yeah, just, just practically speaking, it's not a viable solution to this problem. And it really speaks to one of the fundamental weaknesses of the emperor uh, in this time period is that decentralization, is that sort of uh, uh, reliance on tradition for any sort of practical power. Yes, there's this God-given power by, you know, through the coronation uh, by the Pope, but if you're not Catholic, what do you care about that? It doesn't hold anything anymore because not enough people are Catholic anymore. That only matters if everyone is Catholic because you can go to these states and say you're defying the will of the Pope and they would say, what else is new? That's kind of the whole point of this thing. It's an interesting position to be in. So yes, he has support of other Catholic nations. Um, he has support of the Spanish Habsburgs. He has, uh, you know, whatever troops he can muster on his own, but not enough to decisively quash this uprising by all these protestant states and so for the next four years he's trying to put out these little fires all over the holy roman empire that keep springing up because they keep raising just enough money to field more mercenaries hmm. and then in 1625 king christian the fourth of denmark decides that this whole thing is starting to look a little bit dangerous for protestants the world over and 
if it spirals out of control the way it seems to be spiraling out of control, he has a lot of territory at risk. See, Denmark and Norway are basically one country at this point in time. And Norway's quite safe from the Germans. But Denmark itself, well, that's just sitting right there. It's a peninsula. It's isolated. It's relatively small. That's also the seat of power for Denmark-Norway. And as a Protestant nation, he's worried that once these little fires that are popping up finally get put out, maybe the Catholics don't stop with the Holy Roman Empire. Maybe they come for everybody. And so he decides that it's finally time for Denmark to get involved. I think this is a good place to take a break because things have kind of died down a little bit and they're about to flare right back up. So next time we come back, uh, we'll see this little, you know, five-ish year war turn into a real 30-year war. Sounds good. One of the most complicated things about the Thirty Years' War is its ability to defy classification. Is it religious in nature or political? Is it a civil war or an international one? Why is everyone fighting? None of these questions have straightforward answers. It's all very complicated. The first seven years were a struggle to keep a lid on an internal conflict, a Habsburg family matter, if you will. But with the involvement of Denmark-Norway in 1625, the whole thing spills over. Next time, we'll pick up with Denmark-Norway's entry into the war and let the whole messy thing run its course. That episode will be up soon, most likely in the next two or three days. I know my release schedule has been sloppy lately, but I'm correcting as best I can, and one of the best ways to do that is to not make you wait too long for part two. Think of it as a bit of an apology, and talk to you very soon. Since HI101's format can result in some factual errors, I encourage you to visit hi101.ca and check out the corrections I post for each show there. That's hi101.ca. If there are any errors I haven't addressed on there, please let me know and I'll add them to the notes. You can also reach me on Facebook at facebook.com hi101podcast, on Twitter at hi101podcast, or by email at contact at hi101.ca. It doesn't just have to be about corrections. I look forward to hearing from listeners for any reason and respond when I can. And remember, HI101 is a broad introduction. If the subject we've discussed today has caught your attention, you should start looking for more information yourself. No matter how much you enjoy the show, I promise you'll find even more good stuff out there. I'm Adam Blesky, and this has been HI101. (laughs) 